Hi, and welcome to another episode of Sandhill Road, the show where I talk to successful startup founders and their venture capitalists about the companies that they built and invested. And the goal, like always, is to give you a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. And today, I'm super excited to be joined by Joe Duliner, JD, who is the co-founder and CEO of Pachyderm. Put very simply, Pachyderm is version control for data. So what Git, GitLab, and GitHub does for code, Pachyderm does for data, in particular, large data sets. Think Hadoop, MapReduce, or Spark scale data sets. So this means the Pachyderm helps you track the state of your data over time, backtest models on historical data, share models and results across teams. Let's start with a hot dog. and revert to previous states of the data. As such, Pachyderm is, in my opinion, building a core piece of the infrastructure for the large dataset or big data developer and application ecosystem. When they started out in 2014, when companies wanted to get serious about big data analysis, they had to hire an elite set of programmers with their specialization in Hadoop and MapReduce jobs. They have to meet our rigorous standards. I mean, look at the three we've already hired. Just look at them. There they are. Stallions. Each one more magnificent than the last. Or they could contract a third party like Cloudera, but neither of these options were inexpensive undertakings. And this is exactly where Pachyderm with their open core model came in. Having worked as a data infrastructure engineer at Airbnb in 2014, JD realized the complexity but also the potential of solving these large dataset version control problems. And so he set out to build Pachyderm. Today, Pachyderm is a fast-growing tech company financed by some of the best names in the Valley. They were part of the 2015 Y Combinator winter batch. After going through Y Combinator, they raised a $2 million seed round backed by the likes of Data Collective, Sousa Ventures Foundation Capital, and the Crunch Fund. It was really interesting to hear from JD in this episode that from this seed round, it wasn't really a linear pathway to Series A. Okay, the, the only way that we can get this company to survive is like if we can't raise money from investors, we've got to raise money from customers. So last November, they closed under 10 million Series A led by Benchmark. And in this episode, JD shares the really interesting journey on how this Series A was really a long time in the making. And it wasn't until the next year when we went to talk to Chathan and now he'd moved to Benchmark. So he was at, at NEA for the first conversation. So I'm super excited to dig into the founder, product and funding journey of Pachyderm. So let's dig right in. So for the first question, there was actually a little bit of a problem with the recording. So I asked JD how he found his co-founder and how the YC journey went. And he told me that the first time he applied to YC, it was actually on his own. And it was only after he got rejected for a first time that he and his co-founder joined forces. But let's hear it from him. Um, and so it was at that point that I went to Joey and said, and you know, I'd, I'd of course told him that I'd been applying to rethink or to 
YC and stuff. This wasn't totally out of the blue for him. I told him like, look, like they didn't, they didn't let me in, but here's what they said. I, you know, it was all very, very positive. I think I'm going to apply again in six months. One of the main things that they said I should have at that point is a co-founder. And I think that you're exactly the right guy to do that. And so then we sort of started talking about like why, why we thought that we would be the right sort of mix of co-founders to do a company like that. And, you know, my basic premise for that was that for a company like Pachyderm or like RethinkDB, which was a database company, um, the two sort of most important aspects of co- the company are the technical engineering aspect and the sales and operational aspect, because you need to be able to you know, sell into big enterprises and navigate their org charts and their procurement processes and everything like that. And so I felt like we needed to have a founder who was going to be really, really interested and want to do those parts of work, not just be willing to do those parts of work, but that's actually, you know, the thing that they wake up in the morning thinking about. And so, you know, Joey and I have a very, very natural split in how we work on the company in that I you know, focus on all the technical stuff. And I wake up every morning thinking about how can we make this product better? How can we make the technology, you know, faster and and meet our users needs better? And Joey wakes up thinking about how can we get this in more people's hands? How can we, you know, get this into companies and get them to be successful with it and get them to pay us for it and get our message out there at conferences and everything like that. And so that was basically how the conversations, um, proceeded was us just figuring out like was this going to be a good partnership and then basically you you were working on this already before yc at least intellectually for for a couple Mm -hmm. of years and then you went through y combinator a lot of people who, who go through y combinator at the beginning they don't really feel like especially those who go directly from a from a large technology job um into yc they They often tell me that they don't feel like a real company in the beginning and and only after they sort of incorporate, get all the mentorship and do the pitching and the demo day that at the end of the process, they really feel like like they have a real company there. And um, that that is certainly, I think, matches with my experience very well. I mean, YC is some of the best early validation that you can get. And, you know, to anybody who is thinking of applying to YC, like that alone is is definitely not a good enough reason to do it. Like YC will not take you from zero to a company, but YC will help you to sort of like put together and realize and have the self-confidence that this idea is actually something that people are going to be willing to pay for. And I think that a lot of where this comes from in YC is less to do with um, like any of the individual partners or stuff that YC the organization has does. And it has a lot more to do with the community and the fact that you're just surrounded by people who are at a similar stage in their startup. And, you know, they believe in their, their company and they believe in your company and you sort of like help each other out. You know, I experienced a very similar thing when I went to college where in high school I sort of had some some wonders of like can I actually be you know like a a math major can I actually like hack it at at a top university and and do this stuff and then I got in there and I got in a classroom with other people and I started realizing like oh I I know these concepts I can do this and it was just like having those people around me made me believe that I was one of them so you basically you go through Y Combinator in in, in January 2015, you're, you then basically launch the first version of your product, which gets covered on TechCrunch. And at this point, Pachyderm is, is built already quite heavily into the whole container ecosystem, building mm-hmm. on, on Dockers. And at this point, 
I think um, I think in in the fall when you went through Y Combinator, I think Docker um, sh- had just raised their Series C, forty million Series C. Um, that sounds right. Starting to hit some traction, but you you were taking some platform risk, and probably when you went out to pitch it to to investors, they might not have been that familiar with the whole Docker and, and Kubernetes ecosystem that that would emerge later on. Um, so so how was that process pitching this to investors and and, and also how do you think about taking this platform risk at that point in time? Um, so I always felt that taking those risks was sort of one of the best the best things that we could bet on, just because I I had a lot of confidence that if if I knew nothing else about how to found and run this business, I at least knew what the open source ecosystem looked like at the time and sort of how to navigate that, because that's just the world that I've been embedded in Um since I learned how to program, you know, I'm always reading about like the latest infrastructure, open source projects and things like that. So I had a lot of confidence that Docker um, was going to succeed. And we actually had the really, really good fortune that sort of set us on the path to founding this company, which was that really, really early on, back before Docker was Docker, back when they were dot cloud, um, Solomon, the guy who wrote who originally wrote Docker, went on sort of a little tour of Silicon Valley to just like demo it to anybody who'd watch to get feedback on it. And RethinkDB happened to be one of the places that he came to to demo it because we he was good friends with the founder there. And so we got to see this like really hacky early version of Docker before anybody else did, before I think they'd even released it at PyCon, that we looked at it and and I, I at least knew and I think most of the people at Rethink to be knew like, oh, this is a really awesome way for deploying code. Like this is this is a really big problem that like we have and everyone we talk to has and this is gonna solve it. Um so I had a lot of confidence in Docker. In terms of this being like kind of a headwind or in the early days, it totally was. Um there was, you know, a long process with with fundraising where like there was a certain set of investors who were just like we're like we're like not sold on Docker yet. And so if we're not sold on Docker, then like your company makes absolutely no sense. So we don't want to invest in you. And so that was a, a sort of large percentage of investors, certainly not the majority, but like a meaningful chunk that we sort of just couldn't get to talk to us in the early days. Um, and it was actually even more of a headwind when we were talking to customers, because there, you know, we could go and talk to some customers and they could say, look, we, we think that Docker is really cool too. We think that Docker is the future, but we have the reality of our company's infrastructure right now that we're working with. And the reality is we don't use Docker. We deploy everything on EC2. And so if we're going to need to use, learn to use Docker to use your product, then that's like, we basically need to use two products um, just just to get the value that you're offering. And so this, mm-hmm. the trade-off wasn't there for a lot of places. And, you know, there were even more places, like this doesn't happen anymore, but in the early days it would happen where we'd go in and they, they just hadn't really heard of Docker. You know, they'd maybe heard the word before, but they didn't know what it was. And so you can kind of imagine how those sales pitches go because like the first 45 minutes or so you spend explaining Docker yeah, because yeah, Docker is not a super simple yeah. thing. And so, and then by four, at 45 minutes in, you know, if you've done your job well, the people are like, okay, we, we understand what Docker is. Like, <laughs> this makes sense. What do you guys do again? Like, did you guys write Docker? Yeah. And so then you go into the Pachyderm pitch and that, that's just like never going to work at all. Um, the good news is though, 
that things have definitely flipped since then and all of the tailwinds have become headwinds. And so now when we walk into a company and they ask us, you know, okay, this, the, the benefits of your product seem really interesting to us. How do we deploy this and stuff? And we just say, oh, you just, you just deploy it directly on Kubernetes. And they're like, oh, great. So I just tell my like Kubernetes administrator, like, hey, I need a namespace for Pachyderm. And like, you give me a YAML file that I throw at it and we're done. And we're like, yep, that's how it works. Um, now that's really, really awesome because now there's just so many places where that means that we can like go right into their infrastructure directly without having to have any sort of a complicated deployment process. Um, and that was really one of the original things that we wanted to fix. I mean, one of the things that my team did at Airbnb was we we built the Hadoop clusters. And that was often a like many months, like six months process of just drawing out all of the sort of like Terraform scripts and how are we going to have all these EC2 nodes and who's talking to whom and everything like that, just to get a cluster up and running that people could use. And so going from that to, we've already got Kubernetes running, I just throw like some text at it and all of a sudden everything springs up and it's all like architected correctly and everything's connected and all the logs are captured and stuff like that is one of the really big leap forwards we feel we provide compared to Hadoop. Yeah, I think I think that makes a lot of sense to me that probably in the in the series A which I think you closed in last fall um mm -hmm. people were already fully on board with what docker is and you could going right into into what pachyderm actually does. So let's let's dig a little bit into the product I would say. Let's start mm -hmm. a little bit with the basics of the product and try to make this uh, really really simple for the audience to wrap their head around. Yep. Um so let's say you have on on the one side you have some data Then you have some code that transforms this data, and I think you call this a data pipeline. And yep. at the end of this, you get an output, a result. And if you mm -hmm. if you were to implement this in, in a cloud infrastructure system, I, I would say probably most often you see an AWS S3 object storage instance uh, where the data is, is, is stored. Then you basically spin up your Docker image um, for the data pipeline. You might also run it in in in, in, in more than one node through Yep. orchestrated through a Kubernetes container orchestration system. Then you do the analysis and then you get the result back, you store it back into the object storage. Is this how it works um, or am I that's oversimplifying it? Uh, that's basically exactly how it works. Yeah. I mean, uh, like, you know, you could go into more detail, of course, like, Each, each of these steps has a lot of like things you have to answer in terms of like, well, what happens when it fails? What happens if the node you're on like magically disappears because that happens sometimes on the cloud? Um, but you know, I don't, I don't think that those are, are particularly important details to have to have here. Yeah, that's basically exactly how it works. Okay. You, you just described it. Okay, then um, maybe let me take it a step further to basically understand a little bit how Pachyderm maps versus Hadoop. So um, the way I understand it, Pachyderm has built its own file system, the Pachyderm file system, mm -hmm. which is a little bit like the HDFS um, system, yep. uh, file system that we see, that we know from the Hadoop eco ecosystem. Um, but the way I understand it, in the Hadoop clusters, most of the um, modern Hadoop clusters, they basically, they bypass the HDFS and they store directly to S3. Um, and the way that I understand, at least, the Pachyderm file system is that you, you're kind of putting data into the container and then taking it out, but the data lives somewhere else. So maybe shed some light on, on how this actually works. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we do sort of the same thing that you just described, which is that everything is ultimately stored in S3. Um, when we put data into a container, what we do is we take the user's code 
Um, so, you know, let's say that they've got a container that runs a TensorFlow job on some data. And so the first thing that we do is we boot up that container and then Pachyderm goes into the container and it downloads the data from S3 and it writes it into the container's file system. And so that's ephemeral. That's just stored on the, the sort of like local node. And if the container were to die, that data would go away and we'd have to re-download it. Um, but assuming it doesn't die, what happens next is we boot up the user's process, whatever code they told us to run, and that code starts running and it finds in the file system all of the data that it needs to, to access. And so it can just read that off of disk like any program reads any file off of disk. Um, it can do whatever it wants to it with it. And then when it's done, in this case, when it's trained the model, it's gonna write that back out to disk in a special place. And so after their code exits, then our code goes back in and it slurps up all of that data that they outputted and we just stream that right back into S3. And we, you know, just sort of checkpointed into there. So this thing that you observed about um, how, H how people who are running Hadoop have sort of moved to storing a lot of stuff in S3, um, that's something, that's a shift that was sort of just starting to happen toward the tail end of when I was using Hadoop at Airbnb. Um, and it sort of flew in the face of one of the big like performance uh, benefits of HDFS, which is that HDFS sort of always advertised that they bring the computation to the code. So when you fire off a computation to happen, you've got all of these different nodes that are storing some small subset of the data that needs to be processed. And what HDFS would do, or really what MapReduce would do on top of HDFS, is it would send these computations to the nodes where the data is stored, process them there so it doesn't have to move the data around. And then mm. it would aggregate the results into one place, which was a lot more efficient at a time when bandwidth within a data center was actually a limiting factor on these computations. But people can just kind of realize that the bandwidth within a data center is so high and the bandwidth of like getting data out of S3 from within Amazon's data centers is so high that this optimization just wasn't worth it anymore, especially because storing stuff in S3 is just so much more operationally mm -hmm. simple than running HDFS with all of these hard drives that can fail and nodes can go down and stuff like that. So people just switched to this much more operation operationally um, simple thing that had some slight performance penalties, but was ultimately those performance penalties weren't really that important. Um, and we just sort of leapfrogged straight to that because we just realized that like storing stuff in S3 was going to be the simplest thing to do, particularly in a container environment where, you know, it's containers can come up and down even a lot more frequently than VMs. And so we just use S3 to store all of this stuff. And it's, it's very, very simple. And you can basically store your entire Pachyderm cluster in an S3 bucket. So Maybe let's let's move on a little bit mm -hmm. to the competitor like competitor product. So you're highly integrated with Kubernetes and S S three as we just talked about. And so one of the competitor products out there is DVC, which is highly integrated with Git. So what went into your thought process? And we talked earlier about how you you are a strong believer in, in Docker's and Kubernetes, but how do you think as a result? Pachyderm is perceived differently from DVC or or how do you position yourself in the marketplace, you would say? If, if I could say it, it's probably you're more geared towards the really large tech companies, but I'm not sure whether that's that's really the case. I think that that is the case, and I, I think certainly um, our, our user base reflects that. I think more, more than anything, we're geared toward large data sets, which 
generally large companies have larger data sets than small companies, although that's obviously not like a strict rule or anything. Um, we're also much more geared toward the sort of like operational, like I have this pipeline and every single night I dump my databases into this repo and then I want the pipeline to run. And then out the other side, I want there to be machine learning models and reports and all of these things versus I want to perform experiments um, on this data. I don't know exactly what I'm looking for, but I want to, you know, like fire off a job that does this and maybe I get back something that's totally useless or maybe I get back something that's really interesting and then I fire off another job based on that. Um, we're much more geared toward the prior use case there. Looking at looking over, um, I, I took a sort of look over DVC's like website and marketing material before this podcast. I haven't actually used it yet. I remember when I remember when DVC came out and I thought it was was pretty interesting. I think that DVC does a, a lot of the same things that Pachyderm does, targeted at like slightly different use cases, slightly different scales, um, and things like that. I think that DVC is also a lot more tuned directly toward um, machine learning. Mm -hmm. At least that's like what's what all the the stuff on their site talks about. Um, and Pachyderm tries to sort of be a little bit more generic of a data processing system. And in practice, people use Pachyderm a lot for machine learning. Um, but you know, when I go into a user's cluster who's using it at machine learning, and I look at what their actual like pipeline DAG looks like, um, there's like a bunch of nodes that are doing machine learning and then there's way way more other parts that are just like cleaning the data mm -hmm. and reformatting the data and doing quality checks on it and doing quality checks on the model as an inference like that um and in actuality like it's a lot of them are kind of boring like a lot of them are just like things like you know pivots and stuff that you can do in excel it's just that when you're doing that on petabytes of data when you need to make sure that this runs every single night when you need to be able to like trace it all back to its origin in case like something looks funny like that becomes a much more interesting problem so let's talk a little bit about business model pachyderm is open source but you're operating under this open core model where you also have an enterprise mm -hmm. version so i had um sid from gitlab i think he was in the same um, YC yeah, budget. I know. I know Sid. We were yeah, we I, were friends. I had him on the show actually yesterday, and I think you you, you used to beat him um, on the Nintendo um, during during YC. I think you recounted that once. Yeah, um, I'm I'm a lot better at Nintendo <laughs> than he is. <laughs> yeah, so so basically, uh, he like he had this whole process of like going through like the do donation model, the service model. So did you land directly on this open core model? Or, or what was the, the iteration process there? So there was there was some iteration process. There was a lot less iteration for me than there was for Sid, for the simple reason that Sid Sid and GitLab were probably like three or four years ahead of us when they got into mm -hmm. to YC. Like they already had a pack a, a you know a product and business and everything like that, um, and we were still working on the MVP of our product. And so I got to short circuit a lot of that process by just having a few conversations with Sid and him telling me like, look, I've I've tried all of these things. I've systematically iterated on them. Like here's what works. Here's what doesn't work. Um, things like that. And so our um, you know, our, our business model is modeled a lot off of the learnings of GitLab and sort of looking around at other um, companies that have been in similar situations. Our our board member, Chathan, who's the guy at Benchmark who did the investment, is also on the board of Mongo and Elastic. Uh, and 
he's not actually on the board of Docker right now, but he's someone else at Benchmark is. And so he's got just a lot of like, you know, information on how every single company has accomplished this. And so we sort of realized that an open core model was really what made the most sense to us. Because as you said before, like our offering is very naturally tuned toward big companies. Um, and there's a bunch of features that those big companies were asking us for that we hadn't heard a thing about from our our opens a lot of our open source users like the best example of this is sort of authorization and governance features of being able to say like all right who owns each piece of data and who's able to access this data and what do i do to get access and things like that um and so those are the features that we wind up uh we wound up building for our closed source enterprise offering it's like that the other aspect of our business model which we're just sort of writing and rolling out now is um, the the sort of hub component of it. So just like you know, GitLab is an enterprise product has an enterprise product that you can like pay them for and you can like run on on your own servers. And a lot of that is open source. I think most of that is open source. But you can also just go to GitLab.com and use you know a hosted version of GitLab with all of the enterprise features, mm-hmm. and you can pay for it like that. Um, and that's a really really natural business model for a product like Git because Git is all about collaboration, right? And and it just gets a lot nicer and easier if you can just put this up on the public internet rather than having it on your company's internal servers. Um, and the same exact thing applies for Pachyderm. You know, Pachyderm is basically like Git for data science. And so um, it's all about collaboration on data and things like that. And so we're building a hosted hub solution for Pachyderm right now that we're going to be launching in the second half of this year that's basically for people to get all of these enterprise features online in a hosted solution where you know they're just paying us for the hosting costs. I heard you announced this product before, and I think it's, it's going to be really exciting. Um, in terms of the enterprise version, what's sort of the threshold where people upgrade from the, from the open source self-hosted version to, to the enterprise version? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think on the enterprise version, you have a lot of visualizations, features. Yep. Maybe talk a little bit about the threshold when companies start upgrading to the enterprise version. Uh, so normally the, the threshold comes from like some, some sort of specific need, and we've identified like probably five or six of them that we've got in the enterprise product that we just don't have in the open source. So the, the biggest one I would say is like the authorization features of just being able to like pin down who all of the different users are mm-hmm. and integrate with um, LDAP and stuff like that. That's just that's just something that you find at big companies that like a guy who's working on a weekend project is never going to ask you about because yeah. it's it's his cluster. He owns all sense. of it. Um, visualizations are a big part of it too. You know, the right now, um, Pachyderm open source for you to sort of set up Pachyderm open source and then do like an interesting data science project on top of it, you've got to have a pretty broad skill set. You've got to basically be like at least a competent DevOps engineer, at least a competent data engineer, and a probably a really good data scientist to do something interesting on top of it, which, you know, some, some people are, a, a lot of people are, but not everybody is. And so Companies often, they want to be able to have like our data engineering team like understands how to go directly into Kubernetes and see what's wrong and, and find logs and stuff like that. Our data scientists um, 
don't like to do that so much. And so if they can have just a graphical interface where they can click in and see like, here's some data, mm-hmm. here's a pipeline. I want to put this data into this pipeline. Something went wrong. Like click the button, show me, show me what happened with it. Um, and things like that, like that allows them to focus on what they're good at a lot more rather than having to muck around in like Kubernetes container land and stuff like that, which is not that interesting to them. Um, so that's one of the big t- triggers. There's also just sort of advanced, um, pipeline profiling and performance, mm-hmm. things like that. So like the ability to see like this pipeline is running slowly, like tell me more about why that is happening. Another, another, I will say like pretty big trigger is just, um, the support that comes with the enterprise product. You know, we have like open source support channels, which means we have a, a big Slack channel with all of our users in it and people ask questions and we answer questions. Um, but for enterprise users, like we give them private support channels and we'll get on the phone with them. And if there's, you know, anything and any blocking bugs or anything, we'll get those fixed really, really quickly. And, you know, if they need a new feature, that's something we haven't thought of before. Like we'll work with them to design that and get it implemented and things like that. So talking a little bit about customers, maybe you can mention some of the flagship customers and use cases. We haven't really touched on this. I, for me, like the, the, the archetypical um, use case is really this, this Airbnb, large geolocation data sets, but maybe you can, you can give us some, some, some flagship customers and, and, and use cases Of, of people using Pachyderm today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so one example is actually the Department of Defense. Um, and we, we get used by a couple of defense departments. Um, but most recently, the United States Department of Defense used Pachyderm for um, hosting this competition for doing uh, image recognition on drone footage. Mm-hmm. So basically, like, they, they had a whole, you know, repository of f- drone footage um, collected from drones that are flying around and they wanted to host a competition to the public where people attempt to implement algorithms to detect what's going on, like be able to say, here's a hospital, here's a tree, things like that. Um, and so they, they implemented all of that on top of Pachyderm in, you know, this is a pretty like clear data pipeline problem wherein you have like at the top, all of this drone footage, and then a user submits some code to run and they create a pipeline that runs that code against the footage and, gets a score from that and then sends that score back to the users. Um, We're also getting used in sort of a lot of geological studies things. We recently uh, onboarded Shell, the um, petroleum company, as as a customer. Um, We also get used in a lot of biomedical sciences. So have you heard of the company AgBiome? Yes, yes. Yeah, they do basically microbe design for um, agricultural products. Um, Pachyderm also sees a lot of interest in financials, mm-hmm. um, financial industries. Um, so we're working with the Royal Bank of Canada um, to build out basically their whole data platform that their data scientists use to consume data and you know process it into forecasting models, into low like loan algorithms and things like that. These make a lot of sense to me. Financial services is definitely one where you have really huge granular data sets, also image recognition. So let's talk a little bit about scaling Pachyderm. So you raised this 10 million Series A in, I think, in November, from which was led by Benchmark, and you're now mm-hmm. basically in this scale-up mode. So talk to me a little bit how, about what keeps you awake and, and how you're deploying this capital now. I assume a lot of it goes into in, into engineering work and, and and probably sales. 
but maybe talk a little bit about how you think about scaling this company. Yeah, so this is definitely, this is one of the newest aspects of um, the sort of whole startup experience for me. This is, you know, the company is uh, past the point that I experienced at RethinkDB and well before the point that I experienced at Airbnb. So I haven't really seen a company go through this type of a stage the inside. Um, you know, the main thing that keeps that keeps me up at night is just thinking about how to build out and structure the employees in a way such that everybody is productive and satisfied with their job and not getting burned out and so that it doesn't become you know sort of the demoralizing state that a lot of big companies can reach um and so you know right now packetterm has a very very flat structure we don't really have any managers outside of the founders mm -hmm. um and we have sort of intentionally kept it that way for a while and are just now getting to the point where we're thinking about starting to hire some actual professional managers and so one of the big things that i'm thinking about is you know how do i how do i make this so that it doesn't have the the downsides that people typically associate with it, like inserting layers of management and things like that. And how do I let engineers sort of still be engineers and, you know, kind of drive the company. I think one of the examples that I, I try to look to is, you know, Google, which I think this isn't true anymore, but for a very, very long time into Google's life, it was, the company was really like an engineering first organization and it was really run by the engineers and the engineers kind of had the leeway to explore the ideas that they found most interesting. And Google benefited a lot from that. You know, they found a lot of interesting ideas. And so I want to sort of make sure that we build a similar engineering first organization without making it so that like sales are second class citizens that need to just like figure out how to fit in and coexist around engineering um, and how they can actually do their jobs too. So, you know, it's, it's a tricky problem and I don't think any company actually does this perfectly. You just sort of try to try to avoid things that suck as much as possible yeah. is I think, I think the best you can do it. You know, and you know, sometimes there's just, there isn't a, a, a way to solve it. You know, sometimes it's just like, look, you know, we, we need to get everybody on the same page about this and people are confused. And so that means we're going to need to have a meeting together and nobody, nobody likes to be sitting in a room with like a, a million people all like, you know, trying to talk about the same thing in a meeting and nobody's really quite sure what it is. And people have a hard time getting their voices heard, but like some, sometimes you just sort of have to do the best known solutions to these problems. Um, I've intentionally avoided like some companies try to have like really, really innovative management structures and things like that. And like, like a concept of just like no bosses at all, like valve, the gaming company does that. And mm -hmm. you know, we're not doing anything that, that far afield. We, we try to do like fairly standard things. Um, I just try to make sure that like, we're not, we're not becoming a demoralizing company, basically that we're not turning into something where uh, we're treating our employees just like you know, human assets and stuff like that. And people don't feel like we're hearing their voices. Human resources, I think. Exactly. I mean, the, the name, the we name don't itself, have any yeah. human resources officially at our company right now. Like we don't have a human resources department. Um, and I know that can't go on forever, but the term human resources just feels so demoralizing to me. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear you. So maybe a last question is, so from, from the outside, Pachyderm looks really like an all-around success I mean, you've gone through YC, you've raised a, 
a seed right after or almost right after it. Um, mm -hmm. Then you've now gone to to a Series A. Um, but were, were, were there some some points where you sort of hit hit the roadblock and you felt like this was going to fail and you were you were thinking to yourself what I'm when I what did I do uh, leaving Airbnb for for, for for this grueling startup journey there there have been many points like that and and I will certainly say that while while from the outside Pachyderm looks like a success um, you know we're still fairly early in the startup journey you know there's still the still the most likely scenario for the company is that we die and we're going to have to really work hard and do a lot of things right to make that not be what happens. Um, to, to point to sort of a specific case, before we raised our Series A, so we raised our Series A at the end of last year, so I think it was like September of 2018, um, the entire year of 2017, we were trying to raise our Series A and failing. Um, and we, we were failing basically because the, the company and the market just hadn't matured mm -hmm. enough. And, you know, we remained pretty confident throughout that this was still a good idea with a big, big addressable market and that we had the right solution for it. We just kind of needed the, the market to some time to like breathe and congeal around us and for our solution to kind of like grow into it. Um, but the entire year of 2017 was just every single investor that we, we talked to said no. Um, almost every single customer that we talked to like wasn't quite there. We had a ton of things sort of fall through at the last minute. Um, and we were, we were really getting worried that the company was going to just die. And we things sort of didn't turn around until mm -hmm. the very end of the year. I think it was like basically over between Christmas and New Year's, something like that, like very end of December. Um, you know, we were getting, we were sort of getting pretty close to the end of our runway. Okay. We hadn't been able to get any investors to say yes. And um, so we realized like, okay, the, the only way that we can get this company to survive is like, if we can't raise money from investors, we've got to raise money from customers. And so <laughs> simple, yeah. right? Like why, who needs investors when you've got customers? Um, and so at the very, very end of the year, like I said, like it must've been like right around Christmas, um, Joey managed to close BCG, the Boston mm -hmm. consulting group for, um, a large six figure figure contract. I think it was just, just shy of 500 K. Mm -hmm. Um, and so getting that was both, you know, great because that was the money. Like we looked at that, we're like, Oh shoot, this is, we just closed, you know, like six more months of runway in one contract. But then also once we saw that, we realized like, Oh, this is, we can close contracts this big, you know, companies are going to be willing to pay this amount of money for Pachyderm. And so once we sort of had that, things really started to change around in 2018 and we closed another, a couple more large six figure deals. Investors started to become a little bit more receptive to us. And that all sort of culminated in um, 2000, in the end of 2018, when we finally raised money from Benchmark. Um, one more sort of funny story to throw in there was that actually one of the investors that we talked to during 2017 when we couldn't raise money was Chathan, uh, mm -hmm. who ultimately wound up investing in us. Um, And that was the, the conversation with Chathan was probably one of the most demoralizing conversations because we had our first meeting with him 
And we were like, we felt like that went great. Like we had never had an investor so engaged. Like he understood the problem. He understood the solution. He, he just was really, really into it. And then we didn't even get, get a second, um, like a, a second conversation with him. And that was when we really started questioning. We're like, what are, are we just like completely wrong? Like, were we just sitting there in the room thinking that he was loving it and secretly, like he was just like looking at his watch. Like, when am I going to get these guys out of here? Um, and so we sort of just like, I, you know, I guess we were wrong, like chalk it up, like keep on moving. And it wasn't until the next year when we went to talk to Chathan and now he'd moved to benchmark. So he was at, at NEA for the mm-hmm. first conversation. Um, and we talked to him and he was super interested again and, or he was still super interested and we were like, well, what's going on? Like, you know, you seem super interested before. Then you said, no, he's like, well, it, you know, NEA after the conversation that we had, I went back to the partners and told them I talked to this awesome company and they were like, look, you know, this just doesn't quite fit into our portfolio thesis. Mm -hmm. You know, we're looking for NEA is like the biggest investment firm in the world. And so they're looking to deploy like $300 million into a company that's going to IPO within the next five years rather than into a startup like us where they're going to deploy like 10 million and we're going to like IPO in 10 years or something like that. And so it had nothing to do with the quality of the company that they had said no to us. It was just the situation of the investment firm at the time, things like that. And so that's why like it's it's really, really important if you're trying to raise money or, or doing anything with your startup that you not let any one data point affect you that much Mm -hmm. because there's just there's just so much going on in any one decision and it's it's really hard not to because like you're out there sort of like bearing your soul or at least you're in a very vulnerable position when you're you're trying to get people to invest in your company that you've spent years and years and years working on um and so the fact that they can say no because it's like not because you've done anything wrong. It's just because we're looking for investments with this time frame that we can invest this much money in and like the numbers here don't match. And that's that's perfectly reasonable for investment firms to do. You know, like they've got to have sort of a thesis and a way of doing business and stuff like that. But it feels very personal. And that one that one definitely like that one hit both of us pretty hard. Um, the most important thing for all of this stuff is that you know being being with a co-founder where you you really do believe in each other and believe in the idea you know and you can at least sort of come back at the end of the day and say like look this person didn't invest in us I don't know why it sucks I think they were wrong but we're just going to keep going because you know I still believe in you you still believe in me and we both still believe in this company yeah that's 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 a great story I mean um I, I recently talked to Joseph Jacks, who's, who's, who's uh, running. Um, I know Joseph. Yeah, and we talked about how for a long time it was really hard for venture to wrap their head around the, the open core model, the, the commercial open source software ecosystem in general. And then, I mean, you have, you have people like Peter Fenton at Benchmark um, who, who've, who've invested in, in this space for a long time. And I think NEA, they just moved very much into the later stage deals over, over time. Yeah, and I get when I when I talk to other entrepreneurs, particularly ones who are just starting out, I get a lot of questions that are sort of like, you know, I'm thinking of doing this, but I've heard that investors don't like it when mm-hmm. a company is like this. Like, do you think I should do this instead? Um, and I always tell them, like, maybe you know, if it's really really important that you raise money from those investors who think that, but 
generally you shouldn't be making that many decisions in your company based on like what investors think about in funding unless they they sort of make inherent sense to you as a founder so like you know investors like to see revenue and they really like to see profits that's that's really wise stance by investors like you should totally like you should totally make your decisions based on that to align with what investors are thinking all of these the other sort of like trends that investors get into and things like that like it's you want to keep your finger on that stuff a little bit you want to understand it but ultimately you should you should really be able to make up your own mind on that stuff and investors change their minds on this stuff all the time you know like we we've just watched it we've already seen a few cycles of it you know we've gone from receiving investor skepticism about the container ecosystem and people asking us okay so like how do you eventually expand beyond the container ecosystem to then all of a sudden we just never get that question again mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's just like it's 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 like a switch flips and you know we we heard about this um from our, our investor Chathan, and you know, we part of the reason I think that Benchmark were the ones who ultimately did our round was because Benchmark is a, a pretty independent thinking VC firm, and they don't really follow trends, at least nowhere near as much as other VC firms. They sort of have their own beliefs that they stick to, um, and so we talked to a lot of investors during our Series A who were just like, we don't quite understand what category of product, what category of company this is that you guys are building. Um, and then as soon as Vent, as um, Chathan did the investment in us, he started coming back to us with these slide decks from other companies that were raising money that were like, yeah, we're a competitor to Packeter. <laughs> and like all of a sudden this has become like a, a category yeah, it's, it's that you can raise validated. on because other, yeah, yeah. other investors were just like, oh yeah, well that makes sense. Benchmark just did this round. Like Benchmark's really smart and forward looking. They must know something. So we got to invest in, in a company like this too. Um, and it's this could be infuriating to a lot of entrepreneurs. <laughs> like it's been infuriating to me on several cases, but you sort of just have to, um, you, you have to have enough self-confidence to know when an idea is good, even if investors won't validate it for you at that moment. I, I love that. I love that. And uh, let's, let's end on this great note that you, you shouldn't always cater to external validation as a founder. I think I, I love that. Where can people find out a little bit more about, you about the firm so so i mean they they can find out more about packaderm just at packaderm.io um that's our website we have our blog and everything there we have a pretty active slack users channel that's just uh slack.packaderm.io i believe um i have a, a personal blog and a twitter that's not very frequently updated so that's where people can go to learn more about me okay um perfect so this is it for today i hope you found it useful I think Pachyderm is a super exciting company and I'm really looking forward to follow their journey. And if you want to hear more about what I'm up to, you can always subscribe to my newsletter on sandhillroad.io or just subscribe to the channel and tune in next time. It's up to you. Cheers, guys.